is, it's me, it's TRG, the rambling gambler, a vest-wearing, ring-bearing, dreamer of dreams, and a traveling man who has chalked up many a mile. I've read dozens of books about heroes and crooks, and I've learned much from both of their styles. Welcome, this is our Casino Combat Podcast, episode 28. With a proper tip of my hat to the author, I have learned from heroes and crooks, and I'm going to share some of that knowledge with you today. But first, gentlemen, ladies, non-binary persons, Mia, who talks to angels, says they all know her name. Do not gamble with money you cannot afford to lose. Do not gamble with money you need to pay your bills. My past performances are not indicative of anyone's future results, including my own. If you have a gambling problem, contact your local problem gambling hotline. If you do not know your local problem gambling hotline number, send an email to help at casinocombat.com. We will find that number for you. We will make it available to you. Everything I'm going to share with you in this podcast is based in fact. Names and dates have been altered to protect the innocent and the guilty. Minor items unrelated to outcomes may be omitted in the interest of brevity and clarity. Okay, all right. Yeah, who am I kidding? Brevity has never exactly been part of my brand, even though I say that every week. Um, Here we go. I'm excited about what I have to share with you today, everybody. Let me run down the podcast basics first. Just get all that housekeeping stuff out of the way. There are games in the podcast and prizes to go with the games. We've had one winner already, so this is not an impossible task. It's very doable if you're if it's something you're interested in. If you want to play, you have to listen to episode 22. I'm not going to go through all the games and all the details here again. It's going to bore people that have been around for, for all of it. But it's all in episode 22. All the rules are laid out. All the process is laid out. If you need basics for the core concepts, you need just the core concepts, we have a Casino Combat Boot Camp playlist on our YouTube channel, and that teaches all the basic ideas. Of course, we spell both Combat and Boot Camp with a K for fiduciary reasons. Sometimes very improbable things actually do happen. I seem to have invented a slot machine strategy that conforms to the principles of casino combat. And that shouldn't be true, but so far it is. So, actually, I'm going to have more about that topic uh, when we talk about the Vegas results a little later in the podcast. One of my focuses is to share with all of you exactly what I do so that if you want to, you can do the same thing or incorporate it into what you do. So I wrote up the details of this slot strategy in a small ebook. It's free and not free like, okay, it's free, but you got to pay me $20 in shipping and not free, but I'm trying to sell you something else to go along with it. If you'll just buy this other thing, Uh, I don't have anything to sell you. At least as of December, 2020, I have no merch. I have no sales part of the website. I don't have that. So when I say free, I mean free. Which means the book maybe is probably worth exactly what you're going to pay for it. But if you'd want a copy, if it's something you'd like to take a look at, send me an email via trg at casinocombat.com. In the subject line, include the two words, slot tactics. S-L-O-T space T-A-C-T-I-C-S. I'll email you a link to download the book. Also, don't forget, you can interact with the podcast via social media, We're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook. We appreciate likes, shares, follows, reviews, comments, you know, all that good social media stuff. It helps us out. It helps us reach more people and that helps us help more people, right? So if you could do some of those things, we'd all appreciate it. Look, we had a pretty uh, teach-heavy episode last week. I think the material was good, but 
there's a lot of stuff kind of packed in there and a lot to follow. So I thought, let's go the other direction this week and kind of dial back the teaching. I'm going to do a little bit, but we're going to dial back the teaching. And so I'm going to do a kind of a long questions my sons ask segment today. And I actually have a great question that one of my sons asked. I have a couple questions from my ring guy about the ideas behind the podcast. And a listener emailed me uh, with some questions about regressive wagering. So we'll do uh, a questions my son asks segment and, and we'll kind of go through all of those. And, and so I think that should be fun and informative. And we're going to do a travel segment because I need to tell you about the last part of my Las Vegas trip. And we need to sort out if I accomplished the goals of the trip and, and what the financial results were. Because ultimately, you know my philosophy. If you've been listening, you shouldn't listen to me unless I can prove to you to the best of my ability that what I do works. So the financial results matter. And I also did a little bit, just a little bit of regional gambling And I need to share those results with you as well for all the same reasons. And as for the VIP lounge, if you sometimes turn me off before the VIP lounge because you prefer teaching segments to story segments, stick with me for the VIP lounge today. Don't don't bail on me eight minutes early or whatever it happens to be. I got an email this week and did some conversation with the Maharaja of Money, a good friend of mine, and uh, it got me thinking that I have some really advanced well, advanced in quotes, whatever that means, money management techniques that I really should share with all of you. So I'm going to do that in the VIP lounge. And all that is the stuff that I learned from Heroes and Crooks, as I mentioned in the intro. So we'll, we'll do that when we get there. What? What? So let's get started. Let's get fired up. Let's head right into the question segment. What? What? You know, my sons ask questions, and sometimes listeners ask questions, and in this case, um, the, the guy who makes my rings actually asked a question that I thought you might be interested in an answer to. So I'm going to go over a variety of those questions today, and some of them are serious and intellectual and involved and complicated, and some of them are just less so. Some of them are just kind of for fun. Uh, so let's dig in. Our first question comes from Sammy uh, with an I. And Sammy writes, I think the casino chip game is too hard. We need more clues. Okay, Sammy, look, I like to respond to reasonable requests. So here's what I'm going to do, at least for this episode. You may have noticed some extra sound effects during the intro to this episode. Um, Sound effects that sound like this. I'm going to put those in the podcast each time a casino chip occurs in this episode. So you'll know exactly what you're trying to figure out. Which means, in theory, we wouldn't need the chip count at the end of the episode in the VIP lounge anymore. So, I'm going to try it. I'll see how much extra work it is. And I'll see if I get any positive feedback. And then I'll decide if we're going to keep doing the little chip sounder in future episodes or if we're just going to let that go by the wayside and just go back to a number at the end. We'll see. But, Sammy, I hope it lets you have some fun and kind of... um, you know, try to play the game by knowing which things you're trying to associate with the larger pop, P-O-P, culture world. Um, so there's that. Uh, I got a, a great email from Mahadrin, Mahadrin, I'm sorry, that's uh, that's probably an easy one to get wrong. And if I did get it wrong, I, I apologize. Um, but no pronunciation guide, so I'm just kind of winging it here. But anyway... 
they would like me to discuss modifications to the regressive side of TRG wagering system number one, the, the way I did with the progressive side uh, a few episodes ago. Great question. I should have thought of it. And so thank you very much for the excellent prompt. Let me refresh you real quick here. Regressive wagers are bets larger than the base bet made as a result of previously lost bets. It's, it's the Martingale concept with a label applied to it because Martingale is just one example of betting more when you lose to make money when you win. So in TRG Wagering System 1, the trigger event, which starts the regressive wagers, is the loss of one bet. Or in the case of Blackjack, a set of bets if double, doubles and splits are involved. So in that wagering system, if you bet one unit and lose, you bet two units. And if you win, you have a one unit profit and you start over with your, your one unit bet. And if you lose the second bet in my system, your third bet is four and a half units. And if you lose that, you leave the table. Or maybe you make one more three unit bet to keep playing if things are going well and that three unit bet isn't going to create a, a loss for you, right? That's, that's when we make that three unit bet. So what modifications could we make to that? And why would we make them? Why would it make sense? What, what would we be trying to accomplish? The regressive side of TRG Wagering System 1 is aggressive by design. The goal in that system is to win one of every three hands in a game where on average you should win one of every two. So we could dial back some of the aggression, some of the ramping it up, by changing the trigger event that, that, that starts the regressive wager, right? We could, we could start that for different reasons, something other than I lost one bet. So we could, for example, we could set up our wagering system that we're creating to instead trigger the start of regressive wagering with two back-to-back one-unit losses. So let's use, as we often do, the proverbial $10 unit size. So you bet $10, and if you lose, you bet another $10. And if you win, you have your original money back without a profit, and you just make another $10 bet. It's basically flat betting for the first two bets. And you keep doing that, as I said, until you lose two bets in a row. And the third bet is $30. If you win that, you have a profit of $10 for the three-hand sequence, and you go back to your basic $10 bet. Look, it's less aggressive than my system. You take a little less risk. You win less after three hands. But honestly, this is a modification that seems perfectly playable to me. Perfectly workable. Now, the question becomes, what do you do if you lose the third bet? Now, clearly, just exit the table is an option. You haven't taken much of a hit, right? You bought in with 10 units. You lost five units at most, and you're off the table. Should be just, just, just fine. That's a perfectly good way to construct your system. And if you don't mind jumping table to table to table when things are going badly, then that all works. And it certainly works somewhere like Las Vegas, where you can just wander from table to table, pit to pit, casino to casino, and you're still in the same reward system all day while you're in and out of eight eight buildings or whatever it is at a variety of different pits and a variety of different tables. Look, if you want to make a fourth bet after losing three hands in a row, you have a couple of options. And I'm not sure how attractive these options really are, but let's kind of talk through them. The easy answer is you've lost $50 and you could make a $60 bet. And if you won, you'd have a one unit profit and you could start over. 
Now, you need to adjust your bankroll, right? You need to add more money to the bankroll. You need to add more money to the buy-in amount because you can't start with 10 units, lose five units, and then bet six units. That's 11 units. Doesn't work. So you're going to need more money in your buy-in. You're going to need to be comfortable with losing that amount of money and losing it fairly quickly. And just a note, if you're playing blackjack, right, then your overall bankroll needs to be meaningfully larger because you need to be able to handle splitting pairs multiple times and maybe doubling some of those splits and you need to be able to do that with a six unit bet in the circle. I'm not really crazy about this. It's not probably where I'd go at that point, but the math works, okay? Um, a variation would be to make the fourth bet $30 again. So two $10 bets, two $30 bets. We're at a hundred bucks, okay. And you leave if you lose that fourth $30 bet. Or if you win, you make another $30 bet, which gets you to a profit if you win that bet. And then you can start over at 10 bucks. You know, there are probably other variations that come to mind. There are probably other things you could think about and do here. But I, I, I think that covers the basics. I think that covers the important parts, the important concepts. Uh, Mahadrin, I, I hope that gives you enough ideas to start tinkering with the regressive side of a wagering system to, to find something that, that you like, something that works for you. A quick final thought on this topic. I don't mess with my wagering system very often. I played TRG Wagering System 1 for a decade, continuously. Only way I wagered. I mean, once in a while I'd use TRG Wagering System 3, the, the Meta Martingale, but that's really a, an aggressive variation, a higher risk variation, right? Just applying the same principles to the bankroll. Uh, I've talked about that system before. My point here is that if you create something of your own, play it for a meaningful period of time before you decide to tinker with it, before you decide if it works or it doesn't work. Look, you can have an early huge win and you can go, oh yeah, this works. I did a great job. This is exactly what I want. And conversely, you can have multiple losses early and you're going, oh, this doesn't really work at all. This isn't what I expected. This isn't, no, no, no. You need a larger data set. You need a bigger sample size. You need to do it for several months, at least, and then look back on how it played out over that period of time. At least that's my opinion. Um, I recently uh, had a ring made, and I, I got a couple questions from from my ring guy that, that coordinated all that for me. He was asking about the podcast, and he admitted that he basically knows nothing about gambling, that just, you know, once in a while, once every few years, he and his wife will, will go to a casino for a night out and to have fun. And they assume that everything they take in, they will not come out with financially. They expect to go have a good time, but they're going to be entertained losing money that they walked in with. That's the plan, and that's what happens. And that's great. Gambling for entertainment's just as good as golfing for entertainment or going to a play. Um, so anyway, my ring guy was interested in why I don't scale things way up and get bigger wins and bigger comps. And then he also asked the interesting question that if somebody gave me a million dollars of their money as an investment, what would the expected return be and what would the time frame for that return be? And so his first question about why I don't ramp it up, that I had an answer to. His second question, I didn't really have an answer to at the time. I've been thinking about it. I've been sketching it out. I do have an answer now, and I can share that in the future if someone's interested, but it's that first question about scaling up that I thought some of you might be interested in. 
I've commented before that I started the podcast to demonstrate that a relatively modest bankroll and, generally speaking, smaller bets was all you needed to start getting the comps and the gifts and the free stuff and doing the side hustle and living that casino lifestyle, at least in part of your life. I wanted to show something almost anyone could do. I've said that many times. I mean, look, there is no challenge in getting comps and gifts if you go to a casino once a week and over the course of one evening you lose $10,000. They're going to start giving you comps and gifts. Just keep going and keep losing $10,000. Lose $40,000 a month. They're going to give you free stuff. It doesn't prove anything. I wanted to prove I could win and I wanted to prove that anyone could win and then they could do it with a relatively small amount of money. That's what I was trying to accomplish. So that's why I've been doing what I do. Look, I've gambled with much larger unit sizes over the years, many times. I expect to do it again. It's not that I get all clenched up and worried because I'm playing with larger units. That's not the case. I I trust my methods. Um, And actually, I may double my unit size after the first of the year. I've proven everything works. I've documented it. And, and I might, may start going for bigger wins and, and more points. But here's what my ring guy was missing. He's missing the concept of gambler's ruin, also called often risk of ruin. The concept here is that if I lose all the money that I have to gamble with, I've lost all the money I can afford to lose, I'm done. And you don't ever want to be there. You don't want to be done. Because in the context of casino combat... The engine that generates the comps and the gifts and the free money stops running if you lose all the money you can afford to lose. Now look, I've shown you how to start the engine for yourself. But within the context of what I do, I don't want to be forced to restart the engine in six months after recovering from a meaningful loss. It's wasteful. It takes the playground away from me. It closes my country club. Look, I can't remember the last time that Mrs. TRG and or I lost an entire bankroll. But here's the thing. The bankrolls we are using the bank are bankrolls that we can easily replace. In our case, we can replace it with money from the safe that's been won in the past. But honestly, we could also replace it with personal income and or personal savings accumulated with our jobs outside of our side hustle. The level of gambling we do, the level of gambling that secures us the gifts, the freebies, the comps, and the lifestyle has a risk of ruin approaching zero. But if I decided to increase my bankroll and my unit size by a factor of 10, if I multiplied everything by 10, the bankroll, the buy-in, the unit size, and I do that, and if I did that because in my head I'm thinking, well, we rarely lose the entire bankroll and the rewards would be 10 times larger, That's great, but if I lost that bankroll, I couldn't easily just replace it. I couldn't just reach in the safe and replace it and keep going. And whatever easy means for you in this context, I get that. The point is that instead of losing the entire bankroll as it currently is, is just kind of a big nothing. We kind of just yawn and go on if it had to happen and we wouldn't like it. It would be a big deal It would be something that we needed to discuss, my wife and I, and dissect and figure out and put together a plan to recover from. Always open the show with the reminder not to gamble with money you cannot afford to lose. This is part of that. Setting your bankroll, setting your wagers, for me, at a level where 
you can make it work if it all goes away randomly, sideways, unexpectedly, just the worst possible thing happens. I'm not interested in scaling the system to a size that I can't just reach in my safe and replace the bankroll. Don't like to, don't want to, but I also don't have to worry about it. And that's why I don't just multiply this to the moon, put together everything I, I, I could outside the retirement fund and start winning more and getting more free stuff. Because I've got to be aware of gambler's ruin. And not being a gambler, my ring guy didn't get that. And he gets it now because I explained it to him the way I just kind of explained it to, uh, to all of you. So one final question for this episode, and it comes from my youngest son. We were talking about Las Vegas and various hotels and hotel rooms. And he said that he assumed that all hotel rooms in Las Vegas, even the most basic, were very nice. Certainly above the quality of, say, a Motel 6, which is his minimum standard for a hotel. And I said that I thought there might be some hotel rooms that fell below that standard. I couldn't be sure without checking myself. But then if he was really interested, I could put together a list and we could uh, find time to go check out and confirm my assumptions. So the next thing he says is, but there isn't anywhere on the Strip you wouldn't stay, right? And so I thought that might be a fun thing to share with all of you. My thoughts on places on the Strip that I'm not going to stay. Uh, and and here's here they are and here's why. And like many things casino related, my response here is a bit nuanced. Now, I'm going to answer this from a point of view of places I don't think I'd pay full price to stay in a basic room unless something was forcing me to do that. Which also means that in some situations, I would stay there depending on some other important details. So let me share some examples and some reasons, and then I'll circle back to why I might change my mind or change my standards. And let me start with a disclaimer. I'm answering from memory based on past information and past experiences. It's certainly possible that something I have a negative impression of has been refurbished and is now great. So this is based on what I know, which is not necessarily what is. But the first place on my list is uh, Circus Circus. And that's based on their annex and manor rooms. Circus Circus has a main building, a big parking lot, an RV park, and then some other sets of buildings across that big parking lot and RV park that they call the Manor and the Annex. And they're often very, very inexpensive. And I've never heard anyone have anything good to say about the rooms, the fixtures, the elevators, the smells, the anything. And I've heard plenty of complaints about the rooms and the cleanliness. And for those reasons, I'm hesitant to stay even in a base room at Circus Circus. I mean, they may be just fine. It may be. I do not know. But a property that is willing to let the manor and annex represent their brand isn't something I'm taking a risk on by choice. That said, if I was in Las Vegas with someone between the age of 9 and 14, I'd certainly take them to the Adventure Dome, which is an amusement park at Circus Circus. Been there several times. Enjoyed it as a young adult, enjoyed it with my kids, look forward to enjoying it with my grandkids, happy to do that anytime. But I'm not booking myself a stay at Circus Circus intentionally if I have a choice. Next on my list would be the Stratosphere. Big landmark, 
end of the street on the on the strip as you're headed toward downtown. Again, I've just heard too many horror stories over the past years, and the location, if you're not going to the convention center, the location just isn't good. You're going to spend a lot of time walking to anything or cabbing or Ubering or whatever. I'd happily go to dinner in the revolving restaurant at the top of the building. In fact, I've heard great things, and honestly, it's a Las Vegas experience that I've probably put off too long and should make a point of doing the next time my wife and I are in Las Vegas. And then the other property that I want to mention that would be kind of a hard no for me would be Excalibur. And I get where it fits in the MGM portfolio. It appeals to families. It appeals to children. It appeals to young adults on a tight budget. But everything I've heard indicates that all those priorities contribute to overall poor room quality. And from experience, the rules and limits at their table games are generally not what I'm looking for. So even if I stayed there, I'd be walking at least to the Luxor next door and probably either to Mandalay Bay, New York, New York, or the MGM Grand to do any gambling. So I'm not staying there if I have a choice. So that's my list for the Las Vegas Strip. And I kind of feel like somewhere out there, someone is maybe thinking, wait, what about Casino Royale? How does that not make the list? I have a lot of fond memories of the Casino Royale Casino. And the location is excellent. It is a great place geographically in terms of seeing things and doing things and going other places. And the hotel's run by Best Western, and I've never heard anything negative about it. So I'd stay there willingly at this point. So about those nuances, right? Because I said there's nuance in this. And look, everything's negotiable. So here's an example. I used to gamble at a casino that would award players money for airfare and a three-night stay at the D in downtown Las Vegas, along with some free food and some free play. So what we would do is we'd take that offer from the, the, the casino that, where we gambled sometimes, and we'd, go, we'd fly in, we'd go to the D the first night, We'd use the free play, we'd use the food comps, and then we'd leave the next day and spend the rest of our vacation somewhere on the Strip. And I want to be very clear here. This is an illustration of how everything is negotiable. This is not a put-down of the D. The rooms at the D are great, the rules and limits on their blackjack tables are excellent, and beverage service is almost scary in how prompt and, and well-handled it is. I have all good things to say. If I had any reason to stay downtown... The D would be near the top of my list. I mean, just behind Circa, which is brand new. It's only been open a, a couple months, and it's owned by the same people. So I love the brand, love the property. If I lived within driving distance of Las Vegas, I'd be considering them and Circa as my, as my home casinos. But since I live on the other side of North America, when I'm in Las Vegas, I need to get points from one of the big brands, MGM, Caesars, Sands, and that's where the majority of my gambling needs to happen. But that's an example, that's an illustration of something that might change my mind. The example illustrates the idea. Make me the right offer and things can change. So if Circus Circus contacted me and said, we heard your podcast and we would really like to show you how different things are, we'd like to put you in our basic one-room suite and give you a tour of one of our standard rooms and we have some free play and food comps for you. We really want you to spend an evening with us. I'm in. I'm probably doing that, both in an effort to be fair and because regardless, it would be content for the podcast, right? Which is obviously another possibility, I guess. If I'm thinking out loud, and I guess I'm thinking out loud, um, I can see a year from now doing a follow-up episode to this one 
and I booked myself at one night in each of these hotels and and go and experience them and review them and and reflect back and see how it lines up. So give me a reason and I'm probably willing. Give me a financial incentive, I'm probably very willing. But if I'm making choices, those aren't the places I'm going. You get the idea. You, you understand what I'm saying. So kind of conveniently, let's do the travel segment. Let's do the final part of the Las Vegas trip. Let's get the results, and we're going to do that next. As I did last week, let me run down the gambling I actually did this week very quickly, and then we'll get to the Las Vegas stuff and, and the results there. Um, I picked up some minor free stuff locally and did a, a little small amount of gambling. And full disclosure, that's a door that I've allowed to close. My play has steadily decreased there since they reopened. This particular brand didn't do anything to help players keep their status. They didn't do anything to make it easier to earn new status. They acted as if the pandemic didn't happen and, and they made it, you know, the same standards. So I knew back in September that unless some aspect of that changed, my benefits there would be running out about now. And they are. The weekly free gifts have stopped happening. The monthly free gifts will stop after this month. Um, I'll be dropping down to the second tier in their reward system, which means that if I wanted to go, I'd have to pay for parking. I miss my friends. I miss the casino I used to enjoy. But for right now, the casino I miss doesn't exist. So less local gambling for me because I'm not going to gamble poorly or in a poor environment or in an environment that isn't suitable for success just because it's close. That, that doesn't meet my standards. But I also made a trip uh, to Casino One because Mrs. TRG was enjoying being a grandmother. And I picked up a room comp and a match bet and a free drink coupon. Um, I lost and spent less than a day's pay when it was all said and done. And basically, I had a small blackjack win, followed by a slightly smaller slot machine loss, and then another of those combinations, and then another of those combinations, and then a losing blackjack table to wrap things up. So, uh, a minorly negative week. One interesting thing, one kind of fun and informative thing um, from, from that trip to Casino 1 it's probably been almost a month since uh, since I was at that property. The security and safety protocols have noticeably ramped up. There's now medical screening at check-in. They've defined what used to be just kind of two big arches for people to come and go through from the hotel into the casino has now been tightened up. One's for entrance, one's for exit, and it's narrowed to the point where it's one person in, one person out at a time. With a line, they've added some lines for the kiosks, um, and they've put up a lot more barriers between slot machines, which is great because it actually increases the number of slot machines that are turned on and, and available to be used. So that's good. Uh, my theory is that this has kind of all happened because the state 30 minutes north of them has closed all their casinos for two weeks. So I think they're trying to tighten things up prove to their state they can do things safely and stay open. But what do I know? Just a theory. And the fun thing that happened was, you know, one of my tables, I got to play an extended period of time before I hit an exit with a couple of really good guys. And we got to swapping information. Hey, where are you from? Hey, where are you from? And it turned out they were a group of four and all of them live somewhere near me. 
you know, a suburb over this way or a suburb over that way. So they say to me, well, why aren't you at, you know, the local casino, the one I was just telling you about? And I said that I wanted better rules and more open tables. So, of course, I asked them the obvious question. I said, well, what, what about you? You guys all could have been there, too. And they said they don't play six to five tables. Good for them. And that they wanted $15 tables for a couple people in their group who weren't comfortable at 25 So, my kind of people making good choices with where they do their gambling. We had a great time. Um, and a little quick tale from the vest there. Uh, partway through, one of them says to me, he asked me if I'm military. And I told him, no, I'm not military. I'm just a very organized gambler. Um, that vest, always, uh, always creating conversations. Uh, so that was my week in terms of gambling. A small lost and spend and, and a fun evening and, and a chance to get out of the house. So last week, we used the DeLorean, right? We used the DeLorean to go back in time last week and review more details of the Las Vegas trip. So I have it on good authority that a squirrel spilled a Russian energy drink in the hot tub. So let's use that this week, and let's go back a few weeks and sort out the end of my Las Vegas trip and see how the whole thing ended up and if I met my goals. Any of them? Some of them? Let's find out. So you might recall, if you listened last week, that I finished my second day, my second full day, with a daily win of several days' pay for that day, which put me well over a week's pay for the trip at that point. So I started my last day in a way that many people don't. I had a win to enjoy and protect. That's a good thing. Let me pause a minute and share a concept with you here. If you gamble as regularly as I do, if it's a lifestyle that you live, then being in Las Vegas or Atlantic City is just living your normal life somewhere else. I mean, your normal life with some different and in some cases better options. Anyway, A quick example, and then we'll get back to the Las Vegas stuff, but this illustrates a concept of what my last day in Las Vegas ended up being. So a few years ago, I was invited to take a comped flight to Atlantic City, and they'd have a comped room there for me, obviously. The days that the trip was offered happened to be days that Mrs. TRG had work and social commitments she couldn't get out of and didn't want to get out of, so she couldn't really join me. But that also meant that even if I was home... I wasn't going to be spending much time with her. All our kids are out of the house. So what would I have done on the first afternoon and evening? I'd have done, you know, first day, right? I would have done some work in the morning. And then I'd probably gone to the casino in the afternoon and and hung out with people and, and done some gambling. And the next day, I'd have probably gone to the casino. I don't golf. I don't fish. I don't hunt. I don't woodwork. You don't want to see that. So that's probably what I'd have done. And even if some of it was just hanging out. So I took the trip, and I lived my normal life in Atlantic City. I got up, I did some work in the morning, I flew an hour, I did some additional work in my hotel room, and then I gambled, just like I would have done here. And I did the same thing the next day that I would have done at home as well. I did a little work, did some gambling, had some fun. And in the end, by the middle of the afternoon on the third day, I was home to spend some time with my wife and and enjoy the, the, the end of the weekend. It wasn't a huge vacation. It wasn't even a big deal. It should not be, oh, I took a trip to Atlantic City. I just used a free plane ride in a hotel room to change my zip code and which casino I gambled in for a couple days. So how's that relate to Monday in Las Vegas? Monday's a work day. The previous days of my trip had been a Saturday and a Sunday. I just did a mostly normal for me Monday. When I got up, I recorded the podcast and I did some work for my customers. And then, as I often do, if I'm in, if I'm in my hometown, I went and did some gambling And I picked up some free stuff. 
In this case, I had $40 in free slot play, which turned into $48 cash using slot strategy number one. And then I played a little blackjack at the Flamingo. And at that point, with time on my hands, since I really hadn't spent any time in the, in the Caesars Reward Casinos, headed in the downtown direction on the Strip, I'd gone the other way, I'd gone over to Caesars Palace, but I hadn't, I hadn't, gone, um, <laughs> hadn't gone out of the casino and turned right, as opposed to going out of the casino and turning left. I guess that's the easy way to say that. So I decided just to go down, just to roam through all of the Caesars properties in that direction. Points are points, location didn't matter. Uh, and this is where it gets in- interesting from a podcast point of view. Next to, and actually part of the Flamingo Casino, is a Margaritaville Casino. I'm a longtime Jimmy Buffett fan, so I thought it would be fun to play some hands of blackjack there. But none of the tables were open. So I played a slot machine and I won some money. So that's two slot machines, two different strategies, two winning machines. And I continued my casino ramble and I stopped at the link. And I really didn't expect much in the way of blackjack play there, because even when it's fully open and busy and all of that, Link really targets a younger crowd and has mostly six to five tables. But I played a couple slot machines, losing a small amount on one, and having a really big, decent win, I mean, not thousands, but a decent win on the other. Um, So a profit for the building. And I started to realize that because it's midday on Monday... The weekend crowd is cleared off, and these casinos are operating on a minimal staff. And I'm maybe not going to find a lot of blackjack tables open um, in these properties. So I continue on to Harris, and they did have some tables open, but they were all 6 to 5. So there's zero reason to play 6 to 5 when there were perfectly good 3 to 2 tables at Flamingo, at Cromwell, at Caesars Palace. But I did notice that they were in the process of opening a few more tables. And I thought, okay, maybe those will be three to two, maybe the little higher limit. And so rather than just turn around and walk back, I went looking for a slot machine. And I won some money. And the tables that they opened were six to five. So I found another slot machine and I won some more money. And then I realized that given how everything was set up, this was just kind of kind of maybe be slot machine, slot crawl Monday, at least for a while. So I hit another slot machine, and I, I, I went ahead and headed back to the Flamingo, played another slot machine there, won some more money, and then uh, ultimately went up to the room and edited the podcast, just like I would have at home, and got it ready to be uploaded the next morning, which is also what I would do at home. Uh, so, a very normal hometown Monday at this point, regardless of what the zip code is. Once the podcast was edited... I went to Caesars for dinner, went to a, 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 a very famous steakhouse there, and I found some blackjack tables and some more winning slot machines. I'll skip the rest of the machine-by-machine-by-machine by machine by machine descriptions, but I finished the day having played 11 slot machines as I roamed from casino to casino. I left 10 of those machines with more money than I put in the machine, and I lost money on one of them. So 10 and 1 on 11 machines. I won almost a day and a half's pay, just roaming from slot machine to slot machine and using TRG slot strategy El Numero Dos, the strategy that I give away for free to anyone that's interested in it. I think that's a good record, but I don't know. I mean, here's where here's where my knowledge fails me because I'm not a traditional slot player. It's not something I normally do. It's not part of a, a really significant part of my history uh, until maybe 18 months ago, two years ago, whatever. So I don't know what in air quotes, normal is for slot play. Maybe it's normal for people to leave 10 machines out of 11 
with wins. I have no clue. But as a gambler who traditionally plays table games, I'm thrilled to pick up almost a day and a half's pay and get those tier credits that I really need to earn by just roaming from slot machine to slot machine. I think that's great. I love that. So I finished my evening playing blackjack uh, back at the Cromwell. And I only mentioned that because I met Johnny Utah. And no, not the former quarterback for Ohio State that works for the FBI. Um, a guy named Johnny who was from Utah. Anyway, I really enjoyed this guy. Uh, he apologized the minute I sat down for what I was about to experience. And generally speaking, I'm always up for interesting. So he didn't really scare me away. I just kind of wanted to see what this was going to be. But he was being fair by warning me. Uh, what I found out was uh, you know, it's shortly after dinner time at this point, and Johnny Utah was drunk as a skunk, a very drunk skunk. Uh, what I heard from him and the dealer and the waitress was that he'd been really drunk the night before, stayed up really, really into the, really, really late, you know, wee hours of the morning kind of stuff, slept just a little bit, got up early, and started drinking again. And he's been drinking all day. He was a very distracted drunk. He'd forget he was playing blackjack, he'd forget he had money in the circle, and he'd walk away to a table to find a waitress to to order a drink on the other side of the casino or to order a shot. And he's ordering random shots. He's just asking random strangers, what shot should I get? And then he's ordering it from the waitress. Um, and no rhyme or reason to any of it. But look, when he actually played, he was a decent player or at least a player that asked if it was okay with me before he did really stupid stuff. I wasn't in any hurry. I was winning a little bit. I had the slot wins for the day, I had some table wins for the day, and I had wins for the trip in my pocket. I was pretty sure at that point in my last day that I wasn't leaving town with a loss. So I was willing to enjoy the show and enjoy the silly um, and sip a bourbon and watch the world go by. He was a fun character. It was a very kind of Vegas kind of evening and a great way to finish up my trip. And the next day was completely boring. I got up, I uploaded the podcast, I went to the airport. Nothing to share there. So my last day in Vegas, it's all done. It's wrapped up. Did I hold on to my win? Yeah, I did. And I expanded it by a meaningful amount. It was a day slanted heavily towards slot play. And that slot play added to my win. Did I win enough to cover the cost of the trip? Yes, I did. I had almost four days pay in expenses, which intentionally included two gourmet meals that I put in my plan to make sure I earned tier credits. I finished the trip with those expenses on my room charge, and when I returned home, I paid that credit card bill with cash after collecting cash back on the credit card. So, tier credits, credit card credits, paid off in cash, that was one. And left over after paying that bill was another four days pay in profit. So that's great, right? We're all happy about this. I hope we're all happy about this. Let's evaluate the side hustle based on that information. I took most of three days off work, and other than some minor items, emails, phone calls, a couple other little things during the trip, I really didn't do any work work. I just did side hustle stuff. I enjoyed that long weekend in Vegas, paid for everything, and earned four days pay. So being in Vegas, even with expenses, was more profitable than staying home in this particular case. Did I get enough tier credits to earn tier three diamond status with Caesars? Yes, and that is going to save me and my wife thousands of dollars next year 
just in resort fees. It's going to let me skip lines, eat free, go to shows. I mean, assuming this pandemic winds itself down, all that's going to happen based on this trip. Obviously, I have some Pandemic Vegas memories, and I got podcast content in the process. I'm very happy with how things turned out. I'll leave you with one last thing. I don't think very many people managed to leave Las Vegas with a profit. I realized many times on this last Monday in Las Vegas that this was just kind of normal for me. This is what I expect. I'm not trying to brag. This, this time was a little easier than last time. But in any event, I woke up with a plan because I've left Las Vegas a winner over and over. And I say a plan, but basically standard operating procedure. I know how to handle this. I know how to nav- navigate this. I've done it. So I tend to have a pretty good memory for things. I can tell you my new details about things that happened 30, 40 years ago. But I've left Las Vegas with a profit so many times that I've lost track. I don't even keep count anymore. Because it happens, honestly, more often than not. As I said, not trying to brag, not trying to boast. Not trying to say, look at me. I'm trying to highlight the idea that if you listen to the podcast, you have all the tools you need to do the same thing. I didn't hide anything from you. You've got all the information. But finding your way through a large empty field covered in snow and getting to a safe location is difficult. But it's really easy if you can follow the footprints of someone you trust through the snow. It's not hard at all. You walk where they walked, you'll get where they got. If you trust me, I'm the footprints in the snow. It's all right there. So... What'd I tell you? Oh, VIP Lounge, Heroes and Crooks. And this is a teach. As I said, this is not story time. This is a teach. I have some really advanced money management. Let's call it that. Advanced money management concepts. That's what we're going to talk about. Um, and I want to lay those out for you. And this advanced information certainly belongs in the VIP Lounge. A little bit of the bubbly. Well, unless this is your first time, you know that when we're ready, our lounge is going to be open and it's going to be well stocked. Artisanal sodas, locally handcrafted pop, all the best virtual bottles, beer, wine, sparkling and still water. We have Christmas ale. It's from the local brewery. Very good. Get cinnamon sugar around the rim. And I've just been informed by the bar back that... He has a bottle for us of smoky bourbon, usually only available at a distillery that doesn't sell its product to other bars. But that's the great part about a virtual lounge and a virtual bar back. We get the good stuff. So, smoky bourbon in hand. Gather around, friends. Um, The Maharaja of Money and I were chatting um, by email some this week, and we were kicking around the challenges the United States tax code creates for gamblers. If you lose $10,000 a year for 10 years and then win $100,000 in the 11th year, you owe taxes on the entire $100,000 and there's no consideration given for the $100K we'd lost over the previous uh, 10 years. At least that's the way we understand things. FYI, neither of us are CPAs. But anyway, as a result of that conversation, I shared some information with him that I've picked up over the years from various people and, and by my personal observations. Things that I normally only share with people that I trust. Not saying I've done any or all of this. I'll let you decide if the people I learn from are heroes or crooks. You can make up your own mind. 
So, a while back, and I'm not going to go look up which episode, I told you how I think larger wins should be handled. A portion for charity, a portion set aside for taxes, a portion saved to offset gambling losses in the future, and or a purchase of something that you would like to have but wouldn't normally spend money on at that moment in your life. And I believe that's the right way to handle things. That said, what if you wanted to limit your tax liability? And especially your tax liability around a bigger win, whatever bigger means, right? Um, I've learned a few things over the years that, that could be useful or helpful, and at least to a certain point. I guess if you win a million dollars, some of this won't work. But amounts less than that, you can put some of this into practice if you choose. In my opinion, one of the things you should think about if you're a hero or a crook is how you handle wins of $1,000 or more at a single table. I recommend that you avoid taking chips larger than $500 to the cage. For the higher denomination chips, $1,000, $5,000, ID is going to be requested at the cage, and a call is going to be made to the pit to verify the winnings. You're creating an accurate record of what you've won and what you've lost. So you can avoid large denomination chips by coloring up in small amounts over time instead of all at once at the end. If you're winning, and headed toward that $1,000 mark, ask the dealer to color up $500 for you. And he's going to give you a $500 chip, put that in your pocket. If it happens and you cart to get close to $1,000 again, just do it all over. Get another $500, put it in your pocket. Keep doing that as long as your winning streak continues. Generally speaking, where I play, no one's going to look at you twice for cashing in $500 chips. It's a no big deal. They're not paying attention. Look, sometimes you get a floor person that wants to color up your chips to $1,000 chips or $5,000 chips, and they want to do that before you leave the table. Eh, you can't really say, I mean, you can, you can try to say no, and you can refuse. You can absolutely, you have the right to refuse, but once again, now you're just attracting attention to yourself, and I don't think that's ever particularly a great idea. So it's hard to avoid that color up, but that doesn't mean you have to take it to the cage. Well, what can you do about that? Well, you just break up the larger chips into lower denomination chips at a different table. You, you go to a $15 Baccarat table, you hand them an orange chip, you get back a mix of black, green, and red chips instead of that orange $1,000 chip that's going to get questioned at the cage, and then you make a $15 bet, and then another $15 bet, just kind of as cover bets. You got a 50-50 chance, and then coincidentally, you get a, in quotes, phone call, and you need to leave the table with all your black and green and red chips. So you take those to the cage. Now there's no question about where you got it. There's no ID being taken. There's, there's none of that going on. So then the other thing is, if you're on a winning run, take a bathroom break. Take most of your trip chips with you because you're worried that somebody might steal them. You don't have any reason to be worried that somebody might steal them, but it doesn't look strange. Nobody's wondering. You leave a few chips there to hold your spot. You tell the dealer you're going to go to the bathroom and you'll be right back. And when you come back, you take chips out of your pocket to continue playing. But you don't take all the chips out of your pocket. You leave a big chunk of them there. You just keep enough to play with. Odds are the house isn't going to pay any attention to that. If you do this with green chips, they're not going to pay any attention. And in the end, they're not going to know how much you took off the table. Pit bosses track black and higher chips most places. You can stash green chips and cash those out at the cage. No one's paying attention. You can also use this to create fake losses. 
and you can use those fake losses to offset other wins from the point of view of the house's records. When you buy in, the floor records what you bought in for. And when you color up and leave, the house records what you left with. And that tells them in their mind how you did. And anything below purple chips doesn't get cross-checked at the cage. So, you can make a small win look like a small loss from the house's point of view. You just gradually, casually, pocket some chips as you're winning. And as you're getting ready to leave, you kind of look bummed out. And you color up less than you bought in for. So for example, $300 buy-in. As you're starting to win, you're starting to put some chips in your pocket and no one's paying attention. And gradually you transfer $275 in green chips into a pocket. And then you color up. So the house recorded you were in for $300. They report that you lost $75. And that's what they see. And now you go to the cage and you color up the whole 500 and you've got five and they think you lost 75. You're creating in their books, in their records, in everything they have, you are firmly establishing that you're a loser, that you are no threat to the house. They're gonna give you stuff, they're gonna comp you stuff, you're just another gambling loser. So as far as the IRS is concerned, nothing to see here, you don't owe taxes on losses. The next consideration is what the public sees outside the casino. If your income is less than $250,000 a year, my CPA friends on multiple occasions have told me over the years that the IRS isn't going to audit you unless your lifestyle indicates something shady's going on. It's called a lifestyle audit. I hear it's not fun. So, big wins, once again air quotes, should never go into a bank as a deposit. And certainly nothing over 10K should touch a bank in a chunk. In the U.S., that gets reported to the federal government. Again, this is VIP lounge talk here, and I'm certainly not recommending this. But winning spent in cash on normal bills is a useful tool. So groceries bought with, a, with cash instead of a debit card. Or utility bills paid at the local drugstore with cash. Credit cards from local banks can be paid with cash. Although they're going to probably ask you for ID. So for example, and in theory, you could go to Las Vegas, charge all your expenses to your room to get tier credits, pay your room charges with a credit card from a local bank to get cash back, win enough money in Las Vegas to pay for everything, but never cash chips larger than 500 at the cage, so nothing is tracked back to you. Then you pay off the credit card balance with some of the winnings. Process 100k a year that way, have other income that matches how you generally live, spend other winnings in cash on daily expenses, the occasional high-end dinner or event tickets or some electronics that you want, you and your CPA can decide what the correct amount to pay taxes on is. But there wouldn't be much for the outside world to see. i got kind of a random thought in my head here. I'm going to try to lay it out. I think it applies to the topic of uh, camouflage and, and the public. Um, and I want to refer you to a couple programs on Netflix. One's called Lucifer and the other's called The Order. And they provide a fascinating look at how the public reacts to information that doesn't match their expectation, that doesn't match their normal. So in Lucifer, the literal devil lives on Earth in L.A. He introduces himself by name as Lucifer Morningstar. He never lies to anyone. He always tells the truth. He tells them he's the devil. He refers to the Christian God as Dad. Nobody believes him. They assume it's method acting because it's L.A., 
or that he's a rich guy that is living his fantasy life and pretending to be the devil. The idea that the real devil lives in L.A. and owns a nightclub and is telling them the truth in no way matches their expectations, so they don't believe him. The show The Order is also interesting. It's set on a college campus, and on that college campus, there's a secret society of witches and a secret society of werewolves. And they're both supposed to be very, very secret, right? They're supposed to be super secret, witches and werewolves. And at various points, a character will be talking in public with another character about secrets, and another character will say, Shh, quiet, shut up! People can't know that! And so then the first character who was talking about the secrets will turn to a group of complete strangers and say something like, I'm a werewolf. I'm a member of a secret society of witches. We blow people up. And the strangers will look at them and her and go, hey, yeah, dude, cool, all right. And they'll just continue walking, eating, drinking, whatever they were doing. And the original character who was spilling the secrets says to the objector, see, it doesn't matter. No one cares. Being a winning gambler is a little bit like that. If you tell your friends, your family, complete strangers, that you are a winning gambler, they assume you're exaggerating or forgetting your losses or you're a full-on liar. I mean, not that they usually say that to your face, but they don't believe you. Society is conditioned to believe that consistently winning, regardless of what definition of winning you use, isn't possible. Create no physical, tangible proof don't let the casino think you won enough that they have to send you a 1099G in the United States. And the public will assume you lose at gambling. So there you go. Some advanced level tricks to consider as it relates to winning and taxes. As I said, you can decide if using them makes you a hero or a crook. No chip count this episode. You had the chip sounder to alert you along the way. But there are a few more left. Tip your waitresses, tip your bartenders, tip your dealer. If you have a great session, you can tip your casino coach. Go to anchor.fm slash casino combat. Spell it with a K, of course. And there's a button there where you can click and donate. I have spoken. Everything you heard here is true from a certain point of view. It's time for leaving, and I hope you understand I was born a rambling man. If you have questions, send them to questions at CasinoCombat.com. If you have techniques to share, send them to what I do at CasinoCombat.com. Don't forget, we spell combat with a K. Love it, hate it, it don't matter. Please share with your family and friends. Goodbye, everyone.